0: Series of under construction. Am I on time? Um, so we come to the last in the series of under construction, and it is uh, the one on love. And I just want to review a little bit um, about what we've um, seen from two Peter one five to seven. It says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. I've condensed it a bit to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self control, to self control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness. To godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Cam has mentioned that faith comes first and love comes uh, last in this sequence, and it doesn't matter the order in the middle. And I've sort of highlighted those two. And a point that I want to make about both of those is that both are a gift from God. And none of this is possible, none of these things we can add if we don't realize that everything that we have is a gift from God. And it is made um, very clear when we see that it starts off for this reason. And what reason is given? That his divine power has given you everything you need for a godly life. We're not adding these things out of our own resources. We're doing this knowing that God has given us everything that we need. So if I were to do a a bit of a paraphrase of 2 Peter 1.3, it says this. The Christian life does not start with try harder, and we looked at that earlier, didn't we, when we were talking about self-control. The Christian life starts with grace. He has given you absolutely everything that you need. And when we come to look at love, I'm hoping we'll see that as well. We'll see that God has given us absolutely everything that we need. Now, at this point, I'm supposed to put a a door on to try and complete this project here. Um, I had to give it a bit of a fair nudge earlier. So, we'll um, put it in there. And so, once the the project is complete, um, we know that those things we can add to our Christian life, but we must understand that um, God's grace comes first. So, let us turn to the passage that we have here. And the passage is 1 John um, 4, 7 to 10. And it starts off by saying, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Now, when you first look at this, um, it does not look like it's about um, being full of God's love first. It actually looks like it's some sort of an exhortation, doesn't it? Some sort of an encouragement, because it starts off, Let us love one another. But what I want to tell you about this passage is, although that is the result, it is not the first thing. It is not the primary thing that this um, passage is trying to get through to us. So the first words can be a little bit deceiving. It's not about exhortation. It's not primarily about encouragement, and it's certainly not making you feel guilty and making you feel like, I have to go and I have to love more, I have to do more of that. This passage is far from that. Instead, this passage is a definition. It is about what, God, uh, what love is, and it says that God is love. Love comes from God. All things that are loving ultimately derive their source from Him, for God is love. Like a tree that needs to put out its roots first in order to then grow up, So we need to know God's love first in order that we might stretch out love or God's love into the world. Or perhaps we can think of a river and think of the river drawing its flow from the mountains. If it doesn't have the mountains to um, supply it with the the, um, water, then it is dry and lifeless. So too we, if we do not draw from the source which is God our love in the world will be dry and lifeless. Now, what this means for us is that love does not start with us. It does not emanate from you. Even though um, love is a very Christian message and um, Jesus commands us at various times to love, doesn't he? He does tell us to love our Christian brothers and sisters. He tells us to love our family. He tells us to love our friends. He tells us to love our enemies. But it's not the thing that comes first. The thing that comes first is a love of God. You see, you have no resources within you. Not one person sitting in here has the resources from within themselves to love more. In fact, no one has the resources to love at all if we do not derive that love from God. For love comes from God. The actual context of this passage is that there's a group of people um, that are claiming to know God and John is saying, but they don't love. So they haven't actually got their um, source in God if they're not loving. But again we say, this isn't a command that you must go and love, this is saying that first we must know God's love in order that that love may overflow. So how do we apply this? Well, first of all, we have to recognize, um, oddly, that we don't love, first of all, by doing, but by knowing. If we keep practicing and practicing love, but we don't have our source in God, it will amount to nothing. I guess in the 1 Corinthians 13 language, it will be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, in some ways, what I'm saying sounds a little bit ridiculous here. Um, surely true godly love, true what we've um, uh, come to know as agape love that's described in the Bible, surely this is a, go- uh, is a love of action, isn't it? And I can almost hear some people going, yeah, I think you're a bit off the track here. In fact, I can particularly hear my house church almost goading me at this point and saying, Chris, that's why you haven't got a wife yet because you think love is just a feeling, not an action. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that to truly love, you must first know that you are loved by God. And my pointer has stopped on me now. Can we go to the next one, Kira? All right, now I'm back. Excellent. Um, Now, this is the most important thing that you can know. That you are loved by God. Everything must start at that point. And so, in that sense, there's a certain passivity about it. It's not the command that comes first to love one another first. God is love. You must first come to know that you are loved by God before you can uh, be loved to the world around you. You can't, I guess, fake it until you make it. You can't just keep practicing love. You must first be loved. And I guess to um, illustrate this, we can have the idea of a cup that is overflowing, which many of us would know that analogy, where once it is full of love, then it can overflow to the world around. Perhaps my favourite image in the Bible is um, in Ezekiel 47 where out of the temple flows this water and as the water goes out it nourishes all that is around it and it it rises up to be a river that no one can cross. We must first know that we are loved if we want to see this boundless river flow out of us For, for God is love. And if we apply this to our particular church context, how is it that we as a church can be a more loving church? Now, I guess in the modern way of doing things, we would start to look around and see what other churches are doing that are known to be loving churches. Um, We could uh, do a bit of an audit of them. Perhaps we come away with some sort of a three-point plan of what to put in place in order to be a loving church. This passage tells us not to do that. This passage tells us that in order to be a loving church, we must first be loved by God. You see, a loved church is a loving church. The loving will flow out of being loved and the most important thing that you can hear today is that you are loved by God. Um, There was a, I don't know if anyone's participated in the ABC survey um, that's being done online at the moment. Um, But it sort of revealed that about a third of Australians don't feel regularly loved. It's quite a sad thing, isn't it? But I would say even the two-thirds that do feel regularly loved, I'd wonder whether they know true, what we know as agape love, love that comes from the Father. I would say there's many here that don't know that true love, and in fact, I would say everyone here doesn't know it to its full extent. You see, the depth of God's love, the depth, the height, the breadth of his love, if we searched for all eternity, we'd still be discovering more and more about his love. Such is the depth. Um, Charles Wesley um, put it this way, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divined. And uh, I, I guess... Um, it sounds a little bit despairing, doesn't it, that we can't even get to know the love of God. I don't think that's what Charles Wesley was saying. But ultimately, it's not that we need to grasp the fullness of God's love, but the fullness of God's love actually grasps us. And I reckon that's when we know that we're a Christian, don't we? Not that we intellectualize it and suddenly understand it, but that suddenly we know we're loved by God and suddenly we know that love that grasps us. Now, as we move on, um, 1 John 4, 9, it says, In this the love of God has been revealed to us. In what? Well, in that He sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Now, Sending his son into the world is no small thing. In the history of the world, we don't have other records where the gods have tried to send um, themselves into the world to be amongst the people. But our God loved us so much. He loved us so much that he was prepared to, in the words of Philippians, humble himself. And he would walk amongst his people. He would lower himself so that he could represent us and he lowers himself so that he can be amongst us and love us. You see, we know that God loves us because he is a God that walks among us. And I guess this is where the application comes in. This is where we can apply the love that God has given us so that it overflows to other people. But it's only once that we know that Um, God is the one that humbles himself amongst us. It's only once that we know that he is walking amongst us in the flesh. It is only when we know that he identifies fully with our trials and struggles, that he identifies fully with our rejection and our pain. And I think he does more than just identify with us. He goes further and further. You see, he suffered temptation like none uh, none other of us have suffered. The temptation um, he never gave into and it made it all the more harder for him to bear. He not only identifies with us, he goes further than that. Our God is a God of love that walks among us and when we know this, that is when our cup can overflow. That is when we can get alongside other people And we can identify with their trials and their struggles because we know that he first identified with us. We, like Jesus, can bear the pain of other people as we walk alongside of them so that they do not have to do it alone. But I want to say this. Jesus didn't come just to empathize with us. He didn't come just to bear our pain. He didn't come just to set a good example of how we might be loving. Jesus came as an atoning sacrifice. Um, We were told early that um, it's a bit of a mystery that has been revealed to us. Now, if you think that this mystery of the atoning sacrifice, which I haven't really explained out yet, I'll get to that in a moment, but if you think that what happens at the cross is still a mystery to you. I don't think you're fully alone. You see, what happened at the cross was so deep that we can't find the words to fully explain it. And what I mean by that is where the NIV has translated it, atoning sacrifice, other versions haven't used that phrase at all. Other uh, Other versions have used some even harder words such as expiation and propitiation. And um, the the problem here is that the the Greek word helasmos has such a depth of meaning that we don't know how to translate it fully. Now, when I was talking to my friend about this earlier in the week, um, it came to his mind that there is a a Colin Buchanan, who's a a, a children's songwriter, um, about big words that end in shun. So, for example, revelation, ascension, expiation... Justification, Redemption, Adoption, Substitution, Propitiation, Salvation. Why as Christians do we make such big words? It just makes it harder to understand, doesn't it, it's crazy. But the reason as Christians we make such big words is because so much was achieved at the cross. And as I've already said today, we could search for all eternity long and we could still be discovering things about what happened at the cross, the mystery that is being uncovered and revealed at the cross. And I guess as we move on, we wonder how how it is. You might not understand how it is that Jesus, who is without sin, Jesus who hung on the cross as a criminal, how that is actually a loving action of God. And I want to get us to start to understand that by looking at the story of Abraham and Isaac. I want to look at the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, um, we know this story reasonably well as Christians often, and we know it to be a story about faith. But often, we're just a little bit embarrassed by the story. And we're a bit embarrassed by it because it's a story where Abraham is told by God to offer his son as a sacrifice, to kill his son. And we kind of think, well, God is a loving God. Maybe this is an aberration of his loving kindness rather than the epitome of it. I want to have a look at this with fresh eyes this morning. And the story goes like this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thickets he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. A couple of comments I want to make firstly about the passage. The first one is um, the cultural context that it's in. Um, It's in what's called the ancient Near East. um, And this um, culture was around at the time of Abraham, but it sort of extended into the Canaanite period um, later on. And in this culture, child sacrifice was something that was done, not necessarily regularly, but it wasn't an extraordinary thing to do. It was um, a thing that happened. I'm not justifying uh, the fact that it was okay because the culture around said it was okay, but it's actually really important to understand that that was something that happened in the culture to see what God is saying, and I'll get to that in a moment. The second point is that I'm not 100% convinced that Abraham was expecting that Isaac would be sacrificed. And the reason I say that, there's two parts here. The first one, when he's speaking to his servants before they go up to the distant place to the mountain, he says, we will worship and then we will come back to you. The second says that, Uh, It's when Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So he goes up there in faith and there's at least the possibility in Abraham's mind that God is going to do something miraculous here. I wonder whether, if he thought um, his son was going to be um, sacrificed, whether he thought he could raise him from the dead. I mean, if you take the context of what's happening here, Um, this is still certainly a faith story. I'm not not denying that it's a faith story because if you take the context um, that it's happening in, Abraham, who's getting old, and Sarah, who was getting old, they didn't have a child. And so this promise of God to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, it didn't look like it was going to be um, something that came about. It didn't look like it was going to be fulfilled. And so Abraham goes, "I, I need to do something about this. I need to force this blessing. And so he takes um, Hagar, a concubine, in and uh, he produces a son through her. But God says, no, I will provide. And so later, after Ishmael was born, then Isaac is born. And so then, once he's finally got this son, a son in his old age, a son in Sarah's old age, God is now asking him to sacrifice Abraham had to have faith in order to be um, going ahead with this. But I want to say that this passage is more about God's faithfulness than it is about Abraham's faith. You see, this passage is about the fact that God is the one that provides the sacrifice. It is about the fact that God stands and puts someone who is Jesus Christ in our place. So when we when we read the story of Christ, we must see it sort of as a parallel here. It is us who is about to suffer death, and then God provides the sacrifice in our place. You see, God's great love, true agape love, is, uh, is that um, God will provide the substitute for the sacrifice so that we might not suffer death. Some at this point will ask, well, is death really required? Well, it is, if we, um, is, if it is to satisfy God's justice and if it is to satisfy God's holiness. They are two concepts that we perhaps don't talk about enough in the Christian church. We talk about love um, a lot, but I'd love for us at some stage to do a, a series on holiness, because I think once we understand God's holiness more, we can actually understand his love more. The cross is the only way. The cross was the only way to satisfy God's justice, God's holiness, and it is out of God's complete love that he provides the sacrifice for us so that we do not have to suffer death. Um, Now, even if you can't fully grasp what's being said here, you probably know it by experience. Um, When we talk about guilt, we know that there is a separation of us um, from God, and we know that we are helpless to do anything about it. Um, As little children, um, we sort of hide our faces and parents would know the times when children have done something wrong and they can't face up to them. They're shying away, they're hiding away. Perhaps as we get older we get better at hiding things, but we still fear that someone will come knocking. We're on edge, we look around constantly. Um, Those of you who like literature will be familiar with the Macbeth story and after killing Duncan he feels this guilt and he says, whence is that knocking and he becomes almost paranoid about it. How is it that every noise appalls me? He then goes on to say that all of Neptune's oceans cannot wash away the blood that is on his hands he realises that he is absolutely powerless to do anything about removing his guilt. And we know too that we have sinned and we know that we are powerless to do anything about it so that all of Neptune's oceans cannot wash away our sin. All of Neptune's oceans cannot wash away our guilt. One theologian, Emil Brunner, puts it this way. He says, guilt means that our past always constitutes one element of our present. And the Gospel tells us this. It says that we are totally and utterly helpless to shake off this guilt. We are totally and utterly helpless to get rid of our sin. It is only when Jesus takes sin upon himself, it is only when God provides the sacrifice and he is substituted in our place, It is only when his bloody hands on the cross substitute for our bloody hands that we are free from this guilt and free from death. This is love, Christ on the cross. But what happens at the cross? Well, on the cross, for us, Christ becomes the sinner, the greatest transgressor of all. For us, Christ becomes a murderer, For us, he becomes a hater. For us, he becomes an adulterer filled with all kinds of covetousness. For us, Christ becomes a thief and a liar. For us, he becomes proud and boastful, selfish and mean. Jesus fully and totally identifies with us on the cross. He takes our sin. Martin Luther describes this as a wonderful exchange where our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And his righteousness is no longer his, but it is ours. The cross is where Christ suffered alienation that we might enjoy reconciliation. And as a result, as a a result of Christ's suffering death, he, he suffers abandonment from the Father, the very thing that we have in guilt, that abandonment from the Father. And as a result, he descends into hell because if he's abandoned from the Father, hell, um, by definition, is where God is not. Um, it's interesting when you read um, Psalm 22, when um, Christ calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It shows the abandonment at that point, but it also shows Christ's kingly reign from the cross. It's a fascinating psalm to read. When Christ is quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, It seems that although he's saying God has abandoned him at that point because he's taking the sin of the world, he's also quoting it as the first line of that psalm. And that's, so um, he's saying the fullness of the psalm is encapsulated in him at that moment, moment and so he reigns as king on the cross. The way I've explained it today, um, some would say is a little illogical. Now, just just think of it like this. Um, In my classroom, if a child um, has done something where there's a bit of a mess around and I ask them to stay back and clean up the mess. Now, if another child decides that they're going to be loving for that child and comes along and cleans up that mess, probably I'm happy with that. Okay, so that substitution is okay. However, if I send a student to time out for something that they've done wrong and suddenly another student rocks up in that place, I'm not happy with that. I still want to see the child who uh, did the wrong thing so that I can speak to them and try and deal with what they've done. So, in some ways, um, what I've explained seems a little illogical. the reason is because in one way to explain it, we cannot encapsulate everything that happens at the cross. And that's why there are so many big words that we use to describe what happens. See, one of the things that I haven't explained today um, is our identification with Christ, or more, moreover, His identification with us at the cross. In some ways, I've explained this great exchange as if we're over here and Christ is here and then we sort of swap places, which is true. But that doesn't get to the fact that we are united with Christ. And being united with Christ... um, We, by the way, will suffer death, won't we? All of us will go through death, but the fact that we're united with Christ means that we rise again. And so that union with Christ... Um, has not been fully explained just by looking at um, one understanding of what happened on the cross. It is a a mystery that continues to be revealed to us. But it is a mystery that we should plunge ourselves into to understand more fully what Christ has achieved at the cross so that we can live in the fullness of that. Martin Luther says that we should meditate on this. Um, He says, learn Christ and Him crucified. Learn to pray to him and despairing of yourself to say this, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have made me what I am not. You have taken to yourself what you were not. God is love. Love comes from God true agape love, the love of the Father has its source only and truly in God, we must know that we are first loved by God. Only then can we be a cup that is overflowing to the great river that will bless the world with love. And this love, where do we find it? In Christ the one who came into the world, the one that fully identifies with us, fully identifies with our sin, and the one whose bloody hands on the cross were exchanged for ours. Friends, God is love. Let us pray.